The scripture reading this morning comes from Psalms, and it is Psalms 25, verses 1 through 22, and can be found on page 459 in the Pew Bible. To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, and let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He, him, will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and I'm delighted that each one of you uh, is here this morning, especially if you are newer to Christ's community or you're newer to church generally. Thanks for coming, and I know uh, exploring churches, checking out a new church, coming back to church, all those things aren't, aren't easy things to do. So if you're here uh, brand new, first time, um, thanks for being with us, and hopefully you've experienced a warm welcome here this morning, and we're so glad that you're with us today. And I want to begin our time this morning in prayer and just asking for God's help as we begin to look into his word and contemplate the psalm. Like John mentioned earlier in the service, if you were here, we're in an Advent series looking at um, kind of these great themes of Advent uh, that the church has celebrated for, for centuries and have been kind of been embodied in these candles that represent hope and peace and joy and love, all these, these great themes. And so um, as we look into the psalm this morning, as we look into this, I want to just take a minute and pray and ask for God's help here that we would hear his word. Father in heaven, thank you that you um, have spoken to us in such a great variety of ways in your word, that you don't just give us stories, you don't just give us rules, but that you give us and the Psalms, you give us poetry and songs, you give us letters, you give us so many different types of ways that you speak in the scriptures. And so this morning as we look at Psalm 25, would you attune our hearts and ears um, to the poetry of this psalm? Would we hear your voice speaking to us in it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
One of my favorite things about the holiday season is getting to rewatch all of my, uh, or at least some of my favorite holiday, especially Christmas movies. So you know, your Christmas Vacation, your, your Elf, your Peanuts Christmas, your How the Grinch Stole Christmas, um, White Christmas, which my family had a tradition of we'd often watch White Christmas in December, but we'd always watch it in July. Uh, mostly because of that song, we're having a heat wave, I think, anyway. So we'd always watch Christmas, White Christmas in July, but we watched it at Christmas. Um, there's even, you know, Home Alone is another classic Christmas. I mean, there's so many classic Christmas films, aren't there? And uh, holiday movie season is now in full swing. Rachel and I, over kind of the Thanksgiving holiday, went and saw uh, the new Harry Potter, the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. We loved it. And as we were waiting for that movie to start, we were watching trailers. And one of the trailers that we saw was for this uh, new film. It's actually coming out next week called Collateral Beauty. And it's already starting to get a lot of buzz. I don't know if anyone else has seen the trailer for Collateral Beauty, but it, it looks it looks really interesting. It looks really good. And it stars Will Smith as this young dad who, whose daughter dies. He loses his daughter. And, and after the young girl dies, this grieving dad, he starts writing letters to love and death and time, just kind of these abstract concepts as a way of, of processing his, his grief. And as the trailer goes on, you see that over the course of the film that, that he's actually visited by love, death, time, um, personified, and they're, they're replying to his letters. But what really captivated me this week as I went to the Collateral Beauty website to watch the trailer and learn more about the film was there's this place on the website, this virtual, kind of like a Facebook wall where people from all over the internet coming to the site can write their own letters to love, death, and time. And this wall is covered with these 150 character notes to these things, love, death, and time. And, and some of them are, are playful and, and lighthearted or silly, but, but many of them are gripping and insightful. And here are just a few that grab me. Dear love, I haven't found anything more important in my life than to feel loved and the desire to love. Everything in my life flows from these two things. And love is so central in our lives, isn't it? But, but it's also incredibly elusive. It's incredibly elusive because love can break your heart. It can disappear. Let's listen to this one. Dear love, all my life you have eluded me. I love my kids, but their love for me didn't last. Shall I ever know you like others do? Here's another. Dear love, you weren't there when I needed you most, and I was left alone. That's why I decided to give up on you. And here's the thing. Even for those of us who find the very best of love in this life, Maybe you had just an incredible family growing up and you just, you loved your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters and there's just this great love that you had growing up. Or, or maybe you, you're in an incredible marriage and you just, you love your spouse and, uh, you know, it's been hard at points, but wow, like God is just giving you this incredible gift of just a wonderful marriage or this great relationship with your kids or, or just incredible friendships that have endured time and moves and location and and God maybe has given you this incredible gift of, of an amazing human love. And that, that's not many of our stories, honestly. 
But even if you are in this small minority of people who have gotten to experience the very best that human love can offer in a marriage or a friendship or a a parenting relationship, ultimately even the very best of those loves can't last. Because death always destroys love. salts it, it it brutalizes it. Listen to this one. Dear death, I abhor you. You took him from me. My world, my life, my being, I am empty, cynical about hope. He was my breath, my reason. I yearn for laughter. See, one day death will rob us of even the greatest, the very best of of human loves and relationships. Even the very best of those will ultimately be failed by death. One day, either I will be buried by Rachel or she will bury me, most likely. Right? Maybe you're thinking, wow, Bill, that got heavy pretty quick. <laughs> it's, it's Christmas. There's Christmas lights. It's, like, but these things are real, aren't they? When it comes to conversations about love, how elusive it is, how how fleeting it is, even in the very best of circumstances, and we're left with the question, how can I know that God's love will ultimately never fail me when every other love does? When every other love, even the very best of human love, seems to let us down, whether by human failure or human frailty, and that both of those come into place, right? That sometimes human failure, that we are just crummy as people and we fail to love one another like we ought. But even when we're at our very best, that death, our frailty causes us to break love. If that's true, what, what gives us reason to think that God's love is any different? Especially when it seems like he allows so much trouble in our lives, and so often seems so slow in coming to our rescue. And this is what the psalmist wrestles with here in Psalm 25. And in many ways, Psalm 25 stands in, in stark contrast to Psalm 23, which for my Bible here is just one, one page over, the, the other side of the page in Psalm 23. And um, Psalm 23 is perhaps one of the best-known passages from all the Bible, and it's the one that starts off, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's an incredible psalm of God's promise, His protection. It's a great picture, an ideal picture of, of God as the good shepherd. And it's a true picture of how God relates to us. God does care for us as a good shepherd. He does love us and guard us and protect us. It's an incredible psalm of promise. But sometimes we're in the middle. Sometimes we're in the middle waiting to fully experience the promises of God. And that's where, that's where Psalm 25 lives. In Psalm 23, David declares his trust and his rest in God as the good shepherd. But here in Psalm 25, also written by David, David struggles to believe those promises. And this psalm this morning, it unfolds in three kind of movements. It starts in the valley of trouble. 
of David saying, God, why is there this trouble in my life? And then it ascends to the, the mountaintop of, of confidence and trust in God's unfailing love. And then it descends on the other side of that mountain into another valley, a valley of waiting, a valley of trouble, and then ends in a valley of waiting. And yet, throughout the whole psalm, from valley to mountaintop to valley, there's one thing that, that comes through again and again clear, and that is this, that only one love will never fail. Only one love will never fail us. Only one love will never disappoint us, will never leave us ashamed, will never abandon us. That's David's great cry throughout this psalm. Only one love never fails And the first thing that we see in Psalm 25 and throughout the psalm, really, is this, this incredible picture, yes, of God's love, but we see that in God's love, it will include trouble. God's love will include trouble. A a life lived with God and life lived in God's love is not a life that is free from trouble. And all throughout this psalm, we see the language of trouble. Lonely, verse 16. Afflicted, verse 16. Distressed, verse 17. Trouble, verse 17. Enemies, shame. It's all over the psalm. And it's it's not just here in Psalm 25 either. The language of trouble and hardship and grief and loneliness, it's all over the Psalter, this collection of psalms in the Bible. And sometimes we think of the book of Psalms as this sort of precious moments of the Bible, these kind of sweet little devotional thoughts that God's kind of placed here in the middle. But they're not really. The Psalms have more in common with Hacksaw Ridge than they do with the precious moments chapel. They're lived in in the the torture and the reality of 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 the world that we live in, the broken place that we call home. But our tendency is to sort of sanitize and and tame the scriptures. I think it's just our cultural familiarity. I'm not sure exactly what's behind that. But but even think about the Christmas story. I mean, we, many of us, I'm sure, have nativity scenes set up in our homes right now. We do. We have one in our house. We have one here in church in the back. And there's one downstairs that the kids play with. And, And they're beautiful, right? And they're great aids to calling to mind the story of Christmas and what happened that night that Jesus was born. But they always seem to be set up about five or six hours after Jesus was born. I've never seen a nativity scene with sort of Mary screaming in labor and Joseph shoving the animals out of the way, trying to make a space for this baby in this barn. It's always the peaceful, serene moment that we imagine happening a little bit later on. It's it's never the moment of the, the actual reality of Jesus entering into the world as a helpless baby. But you see, the Psalms don't sanitize life, nor do any of the other scriptures. David enters into Psalm 25, and he begins by crying out, saying people that he once loved, that he trusted, they've turned against him, and now he's alone. And he's looking to God, and he's asking, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to leave me alone and ashamed? What Psalm 25 reminds us is that the life that we live with God in a broken world will always include trouble. What that means is that trouble in your life 
does not mean that God doesn't love you. Let me say that again. Trouble in your life does not mean that God doesn't love you. If you don't believe me, just think about the life of Job. Maybe you know some of the story of Job, but he was this man we know about from the Old Testament who God loved incredibly. We know this, and, and Job was incredibly faithful to God. And then all of a sudden, we know as narrators that Job's done, or as from the narrator, Job doesn't know this. We know from the story that, that Job hasn't done anything wrong. He's, he's continued to be faithful to God, but God allows massive hardship and suffering in his life. His life with God included all kinds of trouble through no fault, no sin of his own. Well, what, about, what about Jesus? I mean, if there's anyone that we don't doubt that God loved, it's Jesus. If there's anyone who was completely faithful and obedient and always did everything right, it's Jesus, right? And yet he experiences unfathomable suffering and trouble. Trouble in your life does not mean that God does not love you. So how do we respond when we're living in the midst of trouble? There's lots of things we could spend a whole morning talking about. This one thing, though, is when we're in the midst of trouble, to take courage. To take courage. But how do we have courage to love God, to experience his love in the midst of trouble when our lives aren't what we want them to be that aren't what we ever imagined that they would be. And the answer, at least part of it, I think is here in Psalm 25 and verse 1, where David says, To you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. God's love will include trouble, and in the face of that trouble, we can either draw near to him or we can begin to run away from him leave him behind. You see, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens you, to continue to see God even when it seems like he's allowing incredible trouble and hardship in your life. Courage is strength in the face of pain or grief. And, and it comes, it begins to well up as we lift our souls to God. Don't run away from him. Lift up your soul to him. Yeah, it sounds like a nice pastory, churchy thing to say, lift up your soul to God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to lift up your soul to God? Well, as we look through what David says after he says, I lift up my soul to you, O Lord, we, we see what it looks like. It, it means being honest with God, with the full range of your emotions. It means crying out to him in prayer, even if it feels like God isn't listening, when it feels like he's abandoned him, when it's abandoned you. Cry out to him. Don't run away. And also don't drift away. There's so many times when we're not running away from God, but we simply start to drift. Sometimes for me, I notice that happens when things are going easy in life and it seems like there's not a lot of hardship and I feel like I don't need God as much and just start to drift away. Or when things begin to get difficult and it just seems like persisting in a relationship with God day after day, week after week is just too much work. And, and we never make a decision to abandon him, but we just kind of drift away. Don't drift. Don't drift. Lift 
Lift up your soul to God. Press in during times of trouble. Don't withdraw. And I think often our greatest fear, maybe we don't always have the words to articulate it in this way, but one of our greatest fears in the midst of feeling like God isn't coming through in the midst of this trouble is that we will be put to shame somehow, that his love will fail us, that it won't be worth it, that all we've invested, all that time and energy and all this hope we've placed in God, that it will all be for nothing and, and it will be put to shame, that we'll look foolish for having trusted in a God who never came through for us. And this is where David takes us next in the psalm. He takes us from this valley of trouble to the mountain of God's unfailing love. Yes, God's love will include trouble. It does include trouble. And for reasons we now do not comprehend and indeed that we may never comprehend, God has allowed trouble in our world and in our lives. But one thing is true. His love will never leave you ashamed. His love will never leave you ashamed. What do I mean by that? I mean that his love will, will never leave you at the altar. You will never be a bride waiting for a groom that never comes. You will never be a groom standing at the altar waiting for a bride who got cold feet and ran away. His no, love will never put you to shame. Um, in my work as a pastor, one of the things that I do on a, on a regular basis is perform weddings. And, and I've never had a true runaway bride, but I've come close. And it was right here on this, this very platform. Um, and I was marrying a couple. They, they aren't part of Christ's community. They were just from the community using the space. And they asked me if I'd do the wedding. And we were about a third of the way through the ceremony, maybe. They, the, the wedding party had come down. The bridesmaids, the groomsmen were all in place. And we had moved up on the platform. I was standing here with, with a couple. And I was starting into my wedding sermon that I give. And I was just kind of getting up steam there. And it was getting good. And then without any warning, any kind of indication of all, the bride simply let go of the groom's hand, walked off the platform and out through those doors. No one, no one said anything. I didn't know. It, was like, it wasn't like she said, I, I, I'm fainting. I, she just let go and walked away. And then if you were there that day, you would have gotten to hear me stall and vamp for about two minutes while I tried to assure people that this was just a, you know, sometimes we need a little break. And, and finally, I mean, it was literally probably a two, about two minutes, which feels about like 20 years in a situation <laughs> like that. I finally walked off the platform to find out because she didn't come back in. And I was like, I need to go figure out what's going on. And so I left the groom then just standing there and I walked uh, out and, and her mom had gone to see her. And apparently uh, she just was, was feeling a little faint and needed a little water. That was the story at least. And, um, <laughs> So she eventually came back out and, and joined, and we finished the ceremony. But in that moment of her walking off the platform, and you could have heard a, a, a pin drop, and you, you felt it in the room, the, the kind of this rising sense of, of horror and shame of, you know, what if she leaves? What if this day is ruined? What, what's, what's happening? And that's what I mean by God's love will never leave you ashamed. God's love will never put you in a place of waiting on a promise that never ultimately comes true. And there's a word that helps us understand this reality in the psalm here. Two words, actually. They're, they're both in verse 6 of Psalm 25. 
It says, remember, David says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. The two words there are, are mercy and then steadfast love, which translates a single Hebrew word. And this idea of mercy, they're both words for love in the Hebrew language. Mercy has the idea of this tender, motherly love. If you've ever seen a, a new mom with her brand new baby, then you've seen this kind of love, this, the kind of love this word mercy is talking about. It's tender, it's, it's pity, it's compassion, it's a, it holds you close, it comforts you. I think about this when, when our daughters are at the doctor and they have to get shots because I'm always the one who, Rachel's like, you be the one to hold them down with the nurse. So I'm always the one like holding them still while they get the shot. And then Rachel wraps them up and comforts them. So I hope our kids don't have complex about that later on. Dad's always the one holding me down while they're shoving needles into me. But then, but, but mom, you know, immediately they just envelops her, those girls, and they cry, but then they're, they're comforted. That's mercy. That's this tender motherly love. But it's really the, the next word that captures the confidence that God's love will never put us to shame. Yes, he has a tender-hearted, motherly, compassion, tenderness towards you. And he's also 100% loyal, always. His loyalty is captured by this Hebrew word, chesed, and it's translated steadfast love here. It occurs three times in Psalm 25, here in verse 6, then again in verse 7, and then later on in verse 10. Steadfast love. Uh, Anthony actually introduced us to this word a couple of weeks ago after Thanksgiving, if you're here for that message on, on hope. Because this word, this hesed word, it's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Psalms about the way that God relates to his people. And, and in ways, it's, it's really hard. It's almost untranslatable. It's this, this never giving up, never stopping, always faithful love. It's the sort of love that, that Jonathan has for David. Jonathan was King Saul's son, he was great friends with David, but Saul disobeys God, and God chooses to anoint David to be king of Israel instead. And so now Jonathan, who would have been heir to the throne of Israel as Saul's son, is now cut off from that opportunity, and his father, Saul, is now trying to kill David. And yet Jonathan remains faithful to his friend. He saves his life time and again, and his loyalty and his friendship triumph over everything else. When I think of this Hebrew word, hesed, I, I think of the great Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hatches the Egg. You know the story, right? Horton the elephant, he, he agrees to sit on this egg. There's this lazy bird who doesn't want to do it. She wants to go take a, a vacation and Horton says, yeah, I'll sit on this egg. But as the, as the story goes on, right, the conditions keep getting worse and worse. First, it's, it's bad weather. It's raining. And then it gets really cold. And he's got icicles hanging off. And then, and then the hunters come. And they, they capture him. And they take him off. And he's in the circus. And he's being mocked. And with each worsening turn, though, Horton remains faithful. You know the refrain. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%. That's how I said. Think of that whenever you read the word steadfast love in your Bible. That God 
meant what he said, and he said what he meant, and he's faithful 100%. Brene Brown has written extensively on shame and vulnerability and creativity and how all these things interrelate together. And she points out that, that shame is this incredibly powerful master emotion. It's a feeling that we aren't good enough. And in her book, The Gift of Imperfection, she writes this. She says, love will never be certain. But after collecting thousands of stories, I'm willing to call this a fact. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all men, women, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. She continues that, that when these needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we grow numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. And she says there are certainly other causes of illness, numbness, and hurt. But the absence of love and belonging will always lead to suffering. The absence of love and belonging will always lead to suffering. Wow. And it's true, humanly speaking. She's right that love will never be certain. But there is a love that's certain. So remember. Remember often. Remember Christmas. Because Christmas is our sign that God's love will never put us to shame. And Christmas may be a time we turn love into mere shallow sentimentality, but not us as Christians. Maybe that's what happens in the broader culture, but that's not what we celebrate as, as Christians at Christmas. Because Christmas is when we remember that God's love is to us not fickle. It's not based on some fleeting feeling it has for us, but it's based on a covenant promise. And he took on flesh and skin and bones because he loved me. You see, God's love may leave you misunderstood. It may leave you persecuted. It may leave you confused. It may leave you hurting and alone. But God's love will never leave you ashamed. He will never leave you at the altar. He will not ever leave you like a bride ashamed waiting for a groom who's never going to come. Because indeed, he already has come. And he will come again. But not yet. But not yet. And this is where the psalmist returns from the mountain back into the valley on the other side, the valley of waiting. As we began in the valley of trouble, seeing that God's love will include, tr include trouble, and then we, we climbed to the height of this God's never-shaming, never-failing love, but now we return to the valley on the other side, this valley of waiting. Because God's love will make you wait. And the language of waiting is all over the Psalms. It's here in this Psalm from beginning to end. We see it vividly in, in verses 16 through 22 when David writes, he writes this in verse 21, May integrity and uprightness preserve thee, for I wait for you. David is confident in God's love. That's, that's what verses 6 through 15 are, are all about. He affirms God's steadfastness and, and God's guidance. And yet he still wrestles with the fact that he is still facing trouble. He is still waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. He is still waiting. 
Listen to the flow here in this psalm, these verses, beginning in 16. David cries out, Turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted, and the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. I mean, there's a lot of trouble here. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. I wait for you. God's love will make us wait. As surely as it includes trouble, it will make us wait. So how do we wait well? How do we wait in a way that helps us to draw closer to God rather than drifting away from him? How do we wait so that impatience doesn't steal our joy? And the key is to wait actively. I was sharing this with our high school and middle school students on Wednesday as we were going through an Advent series with them, that the key is to wait actively. But what does that mean? What does it mean to wait actively? Well, you see, when we think of waiting, at least when I do, I, I typically think of something um, that is, is passive, just sitting there doing nothing, kind of hands folded, being bored. And when I think of waiting, I think of the DMV. That's always the picture that comes to mind when I think of waiting. If you've seen the movie Zootopia, right? I mean, there's this great scene in Zootopia where they have to go to the DMV to get some information. This is a kid's movie. It's a cartoon. And, and they go in there, and the entire place is, is staffed by sloths. And they move so slowly, and they talk so slowly. It's just, I mean, they, they captured the experience of the DMV, right, so well. And you remember, if you ever had to go to the DMV to get some information, you, you felt that, right? And one of the saddest moments for me this fall was when I, I um, had to go to the DMV. And I, the DMV downtown that I usually go to, in the past they've had this great service where you could call ahead. And it's like you got in line virtually, and they would just text you when it was your turn. So it was like in 10, you know, 10, 10 minutes, it's your turn to go. And you'd just drive there and park and walk right in. And I called the number, and they're like, the service has been discontinued. And I still haven't gone yet to take care of the thing I need to take care of. I, I just hate that waiting, right? And that kind of do-nothing waiting will lead us to drift away from God. What we need is active waiting, to wait actively. When I was in high school, as a, I was probably a junior in high school, I started reading this classic devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. And um, there was this one line in that book that stuck with me, and I wrote it down on a card, and that card kind of passed from Bible to Bible. It just always stuck with me. And it was this line, waiting is not sitting with folded hands doing nothing, but it is learning to do what we are told. Waiting is not sitting with folded hands doing nothing, but it is learning to do what we're told. And Pastor Eugene Peterson has a great um, kind of practice for us when we begin to feel distant from God, or, or maybe more likely if you just aren't feeling much of anything toward God. This is often where I find myself, it's not so much that I, I feel distant or I'm angry with God, I just, I find myself not thinking of Him all that often. I just don't feel much of anything toward Him. And what Peterson says to do in those moments is to pick a command in Scripture, 
just find any of God's instruction to us. And in faith, yes, asking for God's help, just totally commit yourself to obeying that one command. Don't try to figure it all out. Just say, what is one thing that God has told me to do? And I'm going to just press into that and try to obey it as much as I can. So maybe this afternoon, do, do a Google search just on the one another's in Scripture. There's a bunch of one another commands in the Bible to forgive one another, to love one another, serve one another, all these different one another commands. You just put that into Google, you'll find a list. Maybe just pick one of those. If you're feeling distant, you're feeling ambivalent toward God, and, and in faith, in trust, in hope, and in, in asking for God's help, say, I'm going I'm to do my best to forgive or to love or to serve or whatever it might be. Because waiting isn't doing nothing. Waiting is learning to obey God. And when we obey him, when we come to this place of actively really trying to do what he's told us to do, what happens is that we come to know him and love him more. And what happens when we know him and love him more is that we find ourselves with this desire welling up within us to obey him more and to live life as he designed it, which in turn then leads to more knowing and loving. It's this beautiful upward spiral of relationship that happens. This great picture of love. But it's true that in this life. Love can feel so fleeting, so fickle, so out of reach that so often fails us. On the most recent Death Cab for Cutie album, there's the song written by Ben Gibbard, the lead singer called You've Haunted Me All Your Life. And I'm a huge Death Cab for Cutie fan. It's about the fleeting, elusive nature of love. And if you know anything about Ben or about Death Cab for Cutie, you're not surprised by that. In one way, every Death Cab for Cutie song is about that. But this theme that's prevalent through all, all of their work is so poignant in the song. And Ben speaking of his longing for a lasting love that, that is permanent, that stays strong. It, 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 it's just captured in the song, and it goes like this. He says, you've haunted me all my life. You, meaning this quest for love. Love, you've haunted me all my life. You're always out of reach when I'm in pursuit, long-winded, then suddenly mute. And there's a flaw in my heart's design, for I keep trying to make you mine. You've haunted me all my life. You've haunted me all my life. You're the mistress I can't make a wife. You've haunted me all my life. And yes, that longing for true love that does not fail can feel like this thing that just haunts us all of our lives. This, this mistress that is try as hard as we might, we just can't seem to make a wife. We can't seem to, to bring it into our lives in a lasting way that doesn't let us down. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that love has come in the form of a person, a person who loved you enough to give his life for you and is always faithful to his word. And yes, his love includes trouble. And yes, his love will and does make us wait. But don't you see why you can wait? Because you, you, you can wait because your trouble is known. 
Not just because God sort of out there somewhere looks down and sees your trouble, but because he took on flesh and skin and bones and entered your trouble and lived all of the hardships of life so that you could know. Wherever you're at, whatever you feel this morning in this moment, that you are utterly loved by love that will never fail. A love that will never put you to shame. A love that will never leave you at the altar. A love that is spoken by a God who means what he said and said what he meant. Whose love is faithful 100%. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you because you first loved us. And when we hated you and didn't want anything to do with you, your love compelled you and drove you forward to pursue us in relationship. Not because you had to, not because you needed us, but simply because you loved us. For some of us this morning, that is a truth that just tethered our souls and comforts us. And for others, we feel betrayed by you. And for others, this just seems like a fairy tale that couldn't possibly be true as much as we might want it to be. Wherever we might be this morning, on that spectrum or anywhere in between, I pray that your love would meet us in fresh ways. As we remember the story of Christmas, the true story of you coming to be with us and as we wait for your return, we have confidence in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.